0: preach on Isaiah chapter 1, 18 to 20, so please turn to that. But I'll also be uh, speaking on the first 20 verses of Isaiah, just to put it in context. So please turn if I can find it myself. Isaiah chapter 1, we're focusing on verses 18 to 20, but we'll be reading the whole of the first 20 verses. Okay. First of all, a quote. It's always good to have a quote at the beginning of a sermon. It makes you look like you've been reading lots of books, <laughs> rather than just Googling things. A quote from uh, John Calvin, the famous reformer. It says this, Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face, and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. We always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy this pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. So bear this in mind. We're going to be coming back to this this idea of sinfulness and a right kind of knowledge of our own sins. So, setting the scene. Judah and Jerusalem were experiencing extremely turbulent days. You may think that in our country today we have a lot of turbulence and many problems. Well, these are nothing by comparison to the problems that Judah was experiencing. And for those people living there at the time, for the Lord's people, this was a deeply concerning situation deeply troubling, traumatic, and very painful. And this is the context in which Isaiah chapter 1 speaks of, is written in. So I'm going to take you through the first 20 verses just very briefly to set the context of what Isaiah is saying here, what the Lord's saying through Isaiah. Okay? Verses 2 to 4. Now this is, I've, I've termed this the Lord's soliloquy. Can anyone tell us what a soliloquy is, please? Soliloquy. Sorry, soliloquy. Bit of a faux pas. Soliloquy. What is a soliloquy filter? What is it? Yes. Thank you, Maria. A monologue. So, in a play, somebody will be speaking regardless of the hearer. They'll be speaking aloud their own thoughts, their thoughts and ideas. And here is the Lord speaking, not so much to his people, but about his people. Hear, O heavens! Listen, O earth! For the Lord has spoken. I reared up children and brought them up, but they rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, manger, sorry, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So This is the Lord speaking about his people, and he makes his case to his wayward covenant people. Now, the Lord's people, as you know, were covenant people with the Lord God, and the Lord has said to them, there are certain conditions by which I will bless you. If you obey my covenant and you obey the demands of this covenant, I will bless you and enrich your land And bless your country. But if you do not obey me, then there will be all kinds of catastrophe and judgment poured out on your land. And this here is a picture of God's broken heart as he looks upon his wayward people who have broken his covenants. And he is grieving over them and he is talking about them with great sorrow in his heart. For 700 years, the people had been in the land of Israel with all these magnificent promises. And yet, time and time again, they had failed the Lord. They had broken his covenant, and they had rebelled against him. They had not kept their side of the bargain. And in Isaiah, we read about a whole litany of sins which the people had committed against the Lord. Oppression, murder, idolatry, to name just a few. You name it, they were doing it. Okay? A huge amount of sin was being committed by the people. Verse 3 here the, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger. The idea here is that even, even a dumb beast, a dumb animal, knows his master and is obedient. But the people of Israel, who had so many promises and so much blessing, did not know their master and their Lord. Okay? So that's the Lord's soliloquy. Okay, 4. A shameful picture. So this is verse 4. Our uh, our sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. Have you noticed here the terms are very scathing of the people of Israel? A people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers. This reminded me very much of John the Baptist when he said a brood of vipers, this idea of a nest of snakes, but here a nest of evildoers. Children given to corruption. The law is extremely scathing about his people, isn't he? A people loaded with guilt, the idea is a beast here that's been loaded up, a pack horse or whatever it was, a camel loaded with sin, almost unable to bear the weight of that sin. Verse 5, a plaintive question. This is the Lord crying out, addressing his people, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? This is the Lord, you can just imagine the cry of the Lord's heart Why do you persist in doing harm to yourselves? You know, if you would cease your your wickedness and turn back to me, I would stop your affliction. And yet you persist, but why are you doing this? Why wouldn't you turn back to me in repentance? The idea is that they are the author of their own problems. But like so many people, they refuse to acknowledge it. And that is a very sad situation to be in. Verse 6, a pitiful description. Listen to this and try and imagine the kind of imagery that's being used here, okay? From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. The idea here, the picture here is of somebody who's been beaten up, who's taken a savage beating. And they're covered in bruises and sores, weeping sores, not cleansed or bandaged. And somebody who's coming back for more and more beating because of their wickedness and disobedience. This really is a pitiful picture, a very graphic description of the sinfulness of the people. Now, in verses 7 to 9, we see a description, a graphic description of the land and the people under judgment. Now, I want you to try and envisage some of the horror that, that would have been encountered in Israel, in Judah at this time, okay? So look, your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you. Laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. So we get an idea, don't we, of the kind of devastation the Lord was bringing on his land. There were invaders from all sides. Flaming cities and devastated fields. Very frightening and unpleasant situation for people to be in, especially those who knew the Lord. And the people of Israel, of Judah, who had had so many promises and such blessing in the past, were in danger of being wiped out and eradicated as a nation. What a horrible position to be in. Tragic and pitiful, and yet entirely their own faults. Now it gets worse. 10 to 17. 17. Hateful religion. The multitude, verse eleven. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord, I have had more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear evil assemblies. I think one of the most shocking things about these verses is that the people of Israel, of Judah, despite the fact they were suffering so much, and so they were so sinful, wicked, and wayward, they were still calling on the Lord. They were still going for all their kind of religious rites and rituals, making sacrifices, convocations, all these kinds of assemblies. They were very religious, and they were calling on the Lord, in a sense, Perhaps for deliverance, I can't really see why else they would have been calling on the Lord. I mean, they they certainly didn't love him. They weren't loyal to him. Why were they calling on him? Surely it was to, to gain deliverance from their enemies and this devastation that was being wrought on their lands. Perhaps like some kind of pagan deity, they were trying to buy off the Lord or bribe him by their sacrifices. Great multitudes of animals killed to try and placate the Lord and make him look upon them with favor. You know, friends, this kind of religion is at best pointless and at worst repugnant to God. God says here he hates their assemblies. He hates them. Can you imagine what it must be like to to have the Lord say, I hate your assemblies? Religion without obedience is hateful to God, without devotion to the law, without faith. And I think that's quite sobering, isn't it? I remember um, when I was in Ukraine uh, Easter, I went to the Orthodox Cathedral just to see the spectacle. You know, thousands of people turned out for the, the party of the year. Midnight service. Um, I went there with my friend, my Ukrainian friend, and he said to me, look, I saw a bunch of heavy set men walking up to the front in leather jackets with you know, the mob, the local mafia, and they, they're coming up to the priest for their blessing once a year for Easter. And so, um, it was a bit of a joke, but isn't it, isn't it sad Is it when people go to God to try and pay him their dues or go to him when they want something from him but actually have no intention of obeying him? Isn't it repugnant when people go to church or go through religious rituals and call upon the name of the Lord, perhaps even sincerely, but yet have no intention of obeying him, bowing the knee to him? And that's exactly what was happening here and the Lord hated it. When someone says to, often I hear people say to me, you're you're a very religious person. When they say you're very religious, what they normally mean is that you're kind of involved in religious activities. You go to church, um, you pray, you read your Bible. I would prefer to be known as a religious person, as a Christian person, because of the way I live my life, not because of my rituals, because of my acts. You know, it's very good that we come to church. It's very good that we're part of a church, that we read the Bible, that we sing songs of praise, that we pray to the Lord. But these things... Are not themselves not enough in themselves to make a person religious, religious, right with God. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in Matthew 24. He says this: "You have neglected the more important matters of the law: justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former." The Pharisees were perfect examples of this: extremely religious, devout, pious, pious in the extreme. And yet the Lord had nothing good to say about them. And he says, well, you shouldn't have neglected those rituals, the observances the Lord required. That's very good. What about the most important matters of the law? The things which please God? Mercy, justice, obedience. Without those, this piety, this religiosity is useless and doesn't please God. Now, let's move on. Verses 16 to 17 the Lord's remedy. This is what the Lord says to his people, what advice he gives them. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. didn't mention this bit at the end of verse 15 your hands are full of blood wash and make yourselves clean this is the advice of the lord repent turn back to god and start obeying him if you want to be heard if you want to be delivered turn back to the lord in faith and obedience we see here don't we this idea of washing introduced in verse 15 verse 16 wash and make yourselves clean this is saying, God's saying to his people, come back and do business with me. Come to me and I will cleanse you. But you must obey me. Now, this is the main part of the sermon. And in the best tradition of sermons, I've done a four-part sermon. Okay. We're going to look out, look at verses 18 to 20. We're going to look at God's appeal to his people. We're going to unpack this and learn a few principles we might hopefully find helpful. So, the first one is the reckoning. Verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. These verses might be translated better. Let's come to a legal decision. Let's come together, let's meet together, and let's discuss the matter, and let's come to a decision, to a conclusion about the state of the problem. I want to point out to you as well, the Lord's mercy and kindness his people have you noticed that the Lord doesn't come with a big stick he doesn't come to judge in this instance but he comes in a very reasonable and merciful way to his people doesn't he come let us reason together let's draw together let's consider the matter together God is slow to anger rich in mercy abounding in love he doesn't come straight away to strike down people he gives them a chance to put right the situation to repent and turn to him God is always like that and God is still like that to this very day and this is music to a sinner's ears to hear the Lord saying this you're not judged instantly come to me let's put this right there's still a chance to make amends there's still a chance that the day might be saved no discerning or wise person would ignore this offer from the Lord only a fool would spurn this the Lord saying well this is a serious problem but come to me We can put things right. This reminds us very much of Jesus, doesn't it? When Jesus came to the world, he didn't come to judge people, but he came to save people. Consider the kindness, the mercy of Jesus when he came. He was exactly like God in this picture here. He came with kindness. He came to reach out to people. He came to speak the truth about their condition. And yet he came with gentleness and with a smile, with kindness, with mercy calling people back to God in repentance Jesus always highlighted and defined the problem of sin Jesus never kind of skipped over that he always told people about the depths of their need for him for salvation and yet he came with this idea of let's settle the matter let's reason together God is calling you this is the day of grace not the day of judgment now part two the problem Let's look at the problem the people of Israel, the people of Judah, were facing here. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. The Lord's verdict on sin is that sin is serious. Sin is not to be trifled with. Sin is not some kind of minor misdemeanor that can be disregarded. Sin is causes damage sin separates us from God sin is abhorrent to God God gives a scathing verdict about their spiritual condition what would he say about your spiritual condition today or my spiritual condition there's a picture here a very graphic picture of somebody who's been caught red-handed in a murder I don't know if you've ever seen a murder, hopefully you've never seen one, I've never seen one, but imagine the horror of discovering a murdered corpse, you know, like Pluto somewhere, you know, Colonel Mustard in the library with the lead pipe. Some horrible graphic corpse and a murderer standing there, his hands and clothes covered with blood. It's actually, you know, we see these these detective programs all the time, they're kind of a bit innocent and a bit silly sometimes, you know, Midsummer Murders, actually it must be horrific to see a murder. This is a revolting picture. We should not let the enormity of it pass us over. When I say this, people think I'm joking. I've actually got a medical phobia, and you'll probably laugh. I've got a phobia of fish bones. If someone was to put some fish bones there, I'd be out of this building like a shot. I cannot stand fish bones for some reason. That's the way I'm wired up. But it's so revolting to me, so disgusting. Um, Good to know. Don't get any ideas. (laughs) Imagine, imagine a beautiful room somewhere in some stately home. Lovely, you know, um, William Morris furnishing, you know, beautiful kind of room, beautifully decorated, very tasteful. Imagine someone desecrating that room with blood and guts and excrement and gore, a revolting picture. You open that door expecting to see a beautiful room. You recoil in horror. <gasps> it's disgusting. You run out of that place. That's the idea here. Somebody absolutely polluted by sin. John read Psalm 24, spoke on Psalm 24 a few weeks ago. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Remember that? So sin is not just repugnant, but also it separates us from God. And if we're polluted by sin, we cannot hope to enter God's holy place. We cannot hope to enter God's kingdom. So sin is serious. serious. I want also to point out today, the Lord himself has the prerogative of deciding what sin is. Okay, Human beings do not get to decide what sin is. God decides what sin is. Okay? He makes it clear. When God gives his verdict on sin, nobody can dispute with him. Nobody can say, well, God, I don't think you're right about that. Actually, I've got my own definition of sin. A few weeks ago, I went to a debate um, with the Brighton Humanist Society, Lindsay and John were there, Christopher was there, a few others were there, and there was a lady there who was a multi-faith minister, I don't know where they find these kind of people, but she was there, and she was um, talking about sin, and she said, well, there's no such thing as sin, sin is what you make make it to be, sin could be almost anything, if you think it's a sin, it's a sin for you, there's no idea that's kind of an objective standard by which to measure morality. What does that mean? Basically that means if we take that line of view then basically we're we're a law unto ourselves. we? We decide what sin is and that's an extremely popular view in our society but what God says is sin is what matters. There's an objective standard God's law given to us in his holy word. Without that morality is simply a matter of consensus or personal opinion. I don't really see, if you're an atheist, how you can really say there's any kind of objective standard by which to measure morality. Many people would not recognize the seriousness of sin. They would not agree with God's verdict against sin. They would say, well, you know, my, my life is clean. And if it's not that clean, I'm sure I can clean it myself. I can make amends for my sin by my good deeds. But sin is a lot more serious than people think. Come back to that quote from Calvin. We always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. And Calvin there is very wise. He he notices that in the human heart there's this tendency to justify ourselves and say, you know, my sins aren't crimson, they're not scarlet, my sins are white, or perhaps a bit pink here and there, but they're not scarlet. But he says, no, actually, according to God's definition, our sins are extremely bad. I would like to put it to you tonight. If we were to assemble here the great and the good of our city, we started to speak about God's standards as outlined in his holy word about sin. I think people would be very uncomfortable, perhaps even quite angry. And I'm, con- I'm convinced of it. I think people would be, be, you know, have, be full of indignation we started upholding God's standards. This week, one of our political leaders, um, Tim Farron, um, you know, very difficult position to be in. He was asked, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps worried about his position, um, he, he refused to give an answer. Um, he said, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I prefer to talk about politics. Well, you can, we can debate all night whether that was right or wrong. But for that, for that refusal to answer, he was absolutely slated on social media. People say, oh, he's one of those bigoted Christians, he's an extremist, almost to the point of shutting him down completely. That's how the world sees sin today. Even the mildest suggestion that God's standard might be still enforced today is enough to get a baying mob of people absolutely indignant, furious, that Christians dare to uphold God's standard. But listen, friends, sin is serious, but it needs to be spoken of. A cancer sufferer is very grateful, probably, to the doctor that diagnosed the cancer. Only a bad doctor would refuse to diagnose the cancer, because he didn't want to upset the patient. But a good doctor, though it might cause great grief and distress, he would say, I'm afraid to tell you this, you've got cancer, and you need to seek treatment if you are to be saved." That's why we need to talk about sin. We don't enjoy talking about it, but it is necessary. Because if people don't know the need they have, the, the desperate state they're in, they will not seek a savior. And when they come to God without understanding that, the depths of their lostness, they will not understand grace. Preaching about sin magnifies God's grace. Because grace is only truly grace when it's given to, to undeserving people, to wretches who deserve nothing, who are lost, totally mired. By their sin. If that is not preached about in churches, then people are shortchanged and deceived. Spurgeon, I can't go for a sermon without quoting from a sermon, Spurgeon. He says, it's a mistaken kindness which refuses, refuses to set before people the peril they are in. Okay? We might think we're being kind to people by not speaking about it. But actually, we're not doing people any favours at all. We're leading them up the garden path, which leads to disruption. Poor Tim Farron, we need to pray for men like him. Later that same day, perhaps to get people off his back, he he stood up and said, well, actually, I don't think it's a sin. And that poor man, actually, he has um, compromised, in my opinion. He's compromised. He's gone against God's word, and he's refused to accept the verdict which God's word gives us he's refused to uphold biblical standards and he's muddied the waters and confused a lot of people. The more prominent Christians do this, the more it muddies the waters and confuses people. You know, friends, we need to agree with God's verdict. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Through the the proclamation of the gospel, When the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit works, and a major part of his work is convicting the sinner. And that's why when sin is made light of or not mentioned, you can be sure the Holy Spirit is not present in that place. The church has a duty to preach the law of God, the standards of God, holding up, as it were, a mirror to the people and saying, look at this mirror, look how vile the condition is. And saying, Come, flee to the fountain which can cleanse you, which is Jesus Christ. Let's go on to the promise. Sorry, I missed all this bit. So one second. Promise. So, as desperate as the situation is, the good news is that all is not lost. Okay. Look at this. If you are willing and obedient, verse 19, you will eat the best from the land. John and I both made a a faux pas today. He said, you'll eat the best land. And I said, uh, soliloquy, soliloquy. Anyway, who cares about that, you know. But you will eat the best of the land. There's two promises here in these verses. Promise number one. Sins will be cleansed verse 18 okay look at this though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow though they're red as crimson they shall be like wool what God's talking about here is full cleansing of sin the idea that somehow sin would be decisively eradicated as though it had never been there and this is emphatic it will definitely happen Have you noticed that the way God says this? This is like a promise that will definitely happen. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white like wool. And it's the second promise. As a result, blessing would come. It talks about eating the best of the land. There would be forgiveness and restoration for God's people. God smiling on his people again, taking away his hand of judgment. Not just removing the judgment but bringing blessing to the people, the covenant promises. Is this a difficult decision? Think about this. A decision was put before the people, a choice, two options, Consider sin, Sorry, continue sinning and end up being judged and destroyed or forsake your sin, receive cleansing and a rich blessing. Is that a difficult decision? You could almost imagine him saying, well, why don't I give you five minutes to think it over? Any sane person would run to God and say, yes, Lord, I'll have the blessing any day. I'll have the cleansing. Not the the more judgment, the more beating. The trouble is, as so often happens, people want deliverance from their misery. They want deliverance from their problems. They don't want deliverance from their sin. But it doesn't work like that. The human heart is desperately deceitful and wicked. And that's why... In the word of God, God promises in Ezekiel 36 to give them a new heart and a new spirit. How are these promises of blessing to be obtained? The first thing is coming to God in sincere repentance, agreeing with God, showing sorrow for sin, turning to righteousness. The first step is to a willingness to obey God and to do what he says. For the Christian, that means trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm fine, thanks. I'm drying up a bit, but that's okay. So, <laughs> This is not morality, friends. He's not saying, here, just pull your socks up. Try, you know, just start doing good things and the Lord will receive you. Start you know, helping the poor. That's not what matters here. The people are already calling on God. It's not a moral thing. You can't save yourself by your own works. What he's saying is, come to me. And if you're truly coming to me in repentance, you're coming to me in faith, then good works will naturally result from that. You cannot come to me and say you are loyal to me, that you love me, that you're sorry for your sin, and yet continue in your wickedness. I want you to notice this as well. This is conditional. He says, if you are willing, if you are willing, you can have this. It's conditional on their obedience, their response. But on the other hand, it will definitely happen. I was was thinking about that in my mind. How can this be? He says, you know, your sins will be white like wool. But he says, on the other hand, if you are willing... We look at the history of the people of Judah. Time and time again, God blessed them, God restored them, and yet they still sinned against him. And the book of Isaiah looks forward towards a future day when one day Christ would establish his kingdom and there would be permanent and decisive cleansing from sin. And God would redeem a people for himself that were loyal to him and loved him and would produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, I want you to, to look at this. There are two aspects of cleansing in the Bible. I must mention this. The first is our positional cleansing before God. This has to do with our legal position before God. When God looks at a person, he sees them in two ways. He either sees them as sinful, a sinner, wayward, wicked, or he sees them as a child of his kingdom, righteous with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. This kind of cleansing has to do with your legal standing before God your status how he looks at you and this positional righteousness comes the moment your heart is strangely warmed the moment that you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that moment you cry out to him and ask for forgiveness that moment the holy spirit does a work in you and he takes away your sin through faith in the blood of Jesus and he declares you righteous before God as though you had never sinned. This is what we call positional righteousness. This is justification by faith. This has to do with how we stand before God. In the book of Revelation, it talks about the people... <laughs> Just ignore him. <laughs> In the book of Revelation, there are two quotes I want to read to you about the people of God. It always happens every time, doesn't it, sir? So. His way of telling me I'm going on too long, you know, so <laughs> he's probably right, actually. But hear me out, you'll like this next bit. So, this idea of God's people assembled before God and they're wearing white robes, pure white robes. Think of your spiritual life, think of yourself as like a white robe, a white garment. That garment has been polluted by years and years of sin, disobedience to God. It's covered, like, like the garments in the Old Testament in, in Isaiah, covered in blood, absolutely scarlet with sin. With a garment like that, you're not going to enter God's kingdom. You can stand outside the gate of the city, you can knock on the door, you're not coming in. Next season, I might go up to the Amex Stadium when Manchester United are playing the Albion. And I might not have a ticket And I could stand outside the turnstiles and ask to be admitted to the stadium. There's no way in a million years they'll let me in unless I have a valid ticket. And if you have a filthy, polluted robe, if your spiritual life has not been cleansed, you will not enter God's kingdom. In fact, you'll be excluded from God's kingdom. You'll be outside, far from God. But the good news is, although you cannot cleanse your robe by your own efforts... If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you believe that He died for you, then your robe can be made clean, absolutely clean, decisively, emphatically clean, and you will be able to enter the kingdom and go into the holy city. Revelation 22 Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Revelation 7 great multitude in white robes they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb isn't that unusual blood normally makes stuff dirty red if you get blood on your clothes it's very difficult to get out i've got a white t-shirt it's very afternoon i've got a white t-shirt somehow got a stain in it i couldn't remove the stain anya bleached it out and got rid of the stain there's still a little trace of it there when god removes sin it's completely gone completely gone you know those old personal adverts used to get on, on the telly back in the day, used to get some bloke dressed up like a scientist and he say, this, this can bleach your clothes whiter than white you know, that's how Christ washes away our sin and it's by his blood, not that of course we have some physical blood, we go and kind of wash ourselves in that blood but symbolically because Jesus' blood was shed for the sins of people, if we put our trust in that sacrifice our spiritual lives are washed clean and we are justified and God declares us clean before him That's what baptism is. Baptism is a symbol, in a sense, of that washing that God can do, that inner washing, that cleansing by the blood of Jesus. So that's the first type of cleansing the Bible talks about, positional. The second, experimental, which talks about sanctification. This talks about the kind of cleansing that goes on after a Christian confesses Christ. So that very moment you confess him, you believe in him, you're washed clean, you're justified before God, you're made right. But then begins the lifelong process by which God cleanses you and makes you holy. More like Jesus Christ. We're rescued from the dominion of sin. We're rescued from the guilt of sin, but also from the dominion of sin. That's why I chose that song, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Be from sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. Jesus' blood cleanses us from our guilt, but it also cleanses us from the power, the dominion of sin, and enables us to live a life recreated to be like, like God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a powerful inner change in the life of a believer. A permanent and decisive cleansing takes place. It says this in Titus 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that his very own, eager to do what is good. And that is true about a Christian. If you're a Christian, you should be eager to do what is good. Now, of course, we're not always eager to do what is good, but the pattern of our life should be eagerness because God is working in us to cleanse us, to make us more like Jesus, to take away the rot and the filth and the sin and the inclination to do wrong, to give us a new heart, a heart which longs to do the will of the Lord and to obey him. John the Baptist told the Pharisees who were coming to him, he said, you brood of vipers, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what this is talking about. If you've truly repented and turned to the Lord, if you're truly born again, produce fruit in keeping with that. Show it by your lives. But He says also, the axe is at the root of the tree. Every tree which does not produce good good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking about people who profess faith but actually produce no fruit whatsoever. Jesus says to people, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? James says, faith without works is dead. It's the same picture again and again. If you've been cleansed, if you've been justified by faith in Jesus, the next most obvious, most natural procedure is sanctification, being cleansed over a lifetime, being made more like Jesus, being made into a holy person, functionally, practically, What does God's blessing look like? In Isaiah, he talks about the best of the land, eating from the best of the land. What does it look like for us? We don't have a physical nation, holy nation. We have a spiritual nation and spiritual blessings. If you're a Christian here today, can you honestly say that following the Lord Jesus has not brought you immense blessing in your life? Not necessarily deliverance from your problems Not necessarily material blessing, that's one of the biggest lies in the church today, that somehow being a Christian fills your life with material blessing and prosperity. But spiritual blessing, all the things that God has promised in his word. Hasn't he poured them out on you? Haven't you experienced that in your lives? Forgiveness, hope, peace, many, many other things. Deliverance from the slavery, the power of sin. Before you were a Christian, didn't you find that sin entrapped you? It got you into all kinds of problems. It messed up your relationships, it made you miserable. Perhaps you didn't for a while. Perhaps you enjoyed the pleasures of sin. But ultimately, it leads to nothing good. When you become a Christian, all that's wiped away. You're not enslaved by it anymore. You're free from it to live a righteous life. And when you obey God's word, hasn't it gone well for you? Haven't you seen how relationships have been improved? And you've been a happier, more joyful person. That's what God promises his people. Blessing for those who turn to him in repentance. Finally, last bit. Four, the warning. If you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Isaiah 1 verse 20. What a tragic outcome. Imagine what it must be like to be devoured by a sword. You can either eat the best of the land or you can be eaten up by the sword. Jesus, by the way, mentions something far more devastating. He talks about the fire for those who do not repent and turn to him. What God is saying to his people here, the people of Judah, if you think things are bad now, things are about to get far worse if you do not repent and turn to me. But it's not too late to change things. Is God just trying to frighten people? Is he just trying to provoke a response no he's not if he says it then it must be true God doesn't just say things to people to try and scare them frighten them into the kingdom people say well if God is a God of love he would never do this he would never allow bad things to happen to people people like the bit about blessing but not the bit about God's judgement but in doing so they say basically that sin has no consequences it's like burying your head in the sand isn't it really when you think about it saying well you know I don't believe there's any kind of comeuppance. There's no kind of day reckoning for those who sin, disregard God. That's inconsistent, isn't it? Even in this world, we demand justice. Should not God be just and punish sin? He will. There's a warning here, but the good news is that nobody has to face this. It's a human decision. In a sense, it's your response. If you are willing, why persist in your rebellion? Isn't it sad when you see somebody so mired in sin, their life a complete mess? I've got friends like this, their lives are such a mess because of their sin, their failure to do things God's way, and yet they still persist in their sin. You offer them the gospel they don't want to know, and yet they still continue, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and yet they refuse to turn to the one who could deliver them and give them life. Let me say this as well, if you're a true Christian, you'll never ever lose your salvation. But don't let that make you complacent. If you're a true Christian, the Lord will keep his hand on you. Even if you wander away from God, if you fall into sin, you take a bad path. The Lord may discipline you and he may let you get to rock bottom. But he will still bring you back to him if you are truly his. But why go down that route? Why resist and rebel? Why not come to God in repentance? With God, it's never, it will be okay in the end. God will not just let people off who spurn his mercy and refuse all opportunities to repent. There will be a day of reckoning. Today is the day of grace. I think that's what the the message of Isaiah chapter 1 is. Today is a day of grace. Use it. Repent and believe and turn back to God. Sorry, Sorry, conclusions. Conclusion number one. What we see in these verses is a pattern for how God has always dealt with sinners and how God still deals with sinners today. God makes a merciful appeal to people. He gives them his verdict of sin. He speaks to them for the good news of salvation, of cleansing. And finally, he gives them a solemn warning about rejecting him. And a gospel presentation, a good gospel presentation, must include all four elements. Okay? When we bring the gospel to people, they need to hear the merciful call of God, they need to hear the good news but also the warning. Is there any element that we find that we are neglecting, perhaps? Point number two. People must come to God in the way that he prescribes. None of us has the right to go to God in the way that we choose. God is our master, God is the Lord, we are mere human beings. He sets out the terms, we don't. We come to him in the way that he prescribes. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. People need to trust in the finished work of Christ. If they don't, their robes are still filthy. And they're still in their sins and they will not enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter how pious they are, how religious, how moral they are, it doesn't matter. The blood of Jesus cleanses sin. It's the only way you can enter the kingdom. We have to, to tell people there's only one way to God. Fruit must be produced in keeping with repentance. We must warn people about religious behavior, externals without heart repentance. OK? If you're truly a Christian, if God has justified you, He will sanctify you as well. Those two things go hand in hand. you cannot separate them. OK? It's actually a very dangerous position to be in, to be a religious person, yet have no desire to really serve the Lord and no faith. Actually, it displeases God. Finally, salvation is available to all who believe. If you are a sinner, it's only your obstinacy, your your stubbornness that prevents you from coming to God, prevents reconciliation with him. God is not willing that any should come to not any, that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God doesn't want people to die and be lost. He wants them to be saved. We should pray, shouldn't we, for people who are lost, that God would convict them by his Holy Spirit to cause them to flee to that fountain that can cleanse them, the only place that can cleanse them, the blood of Jesus. Fail we to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. That desperate cry, save me, wash me. And then we can say, everything that God has said about my condition is absolutely true. I'm a sinner and far worse than I could possibly express in words. And yet God has saved me. God has washed me. Hallelujah. Praise God that he has cleansed me and I'm a new creation. I'm clean before him and he's working to make me truly holy and truly clean. Another quote to finish. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Jim Keller. Let's pray.